Good evening again. It's good to see each of you. If you're not here last night, or maybe if you're live stream and didn't hear the rest of the stuff last night, welcome, and we're glad to have you a part of what we're doing here this evening. Uh, I've known Reagan and um, Stephanie. Uh, I just dropped down a few notches. <laughs> For a number of years, number of years, and it's always enjoy spending time with them. And going way back, um, first years we were married, we knew Josh and Rachel Adams and Debbie, who was, uh, I think, our oldest son's first babysitter. I'd forgotten that. She reminded me. And it's such a blessing to, to have the connection, not only just in, in uh, friendships, but in the Lord that we have with each other. Um, I like Stephanie a little more than Reagan now. After that, that was... <laughs> Top five, that's really nice. I know this, if, uh, that's when you quit. <laughs> it's time to be done. But uh, no, that was, that was just sweet of her. I invite you to study as we do this evening, as we did before, to reflect on what does the world creation teach us about God? Does it teach us anything about God? I firmly believe it does, by his intent. Scripture tells us it does. We looked at some of those last night. And as we saw that the theory of evolution is largely a story. And the story is not an explanation. It sounds good, but you have to get down to the basics, to the nitty-gritty, to say, how does that story actually happen? And that's where the weakness is in that theory. We also saw that science is committed to a very specific view of the world, materialism. That is, that Everything can be explained by material causes. Everything. And there's no need to invoke the supernatural. And if you do, you're violating science. Well, tonight we're going to look at a common argument uh, used. It's in my textbooks that I use in the courses I teach. It's in all over the, the literature about Darwinism, about evolution. It's the idea of poor design. And the idea is pretty simple enough to understand. You look around uh, nature and some things look to be not ideally designed in some cases, at least as best we can tell. Or they look inefficient, or they don't look beautiful or organized. They look piecemealed together. They can. And the argument is, well, that's not how a designer would do it. Uh, I'll give you one example uh, tonight. When I was at the University of Florida, took a course called Evolution, senior level evolution course. And the professor was... Dr. Brower, Dr. Lincoln Brower, who in the world of evolutionary biology was a pretty big deal, actually. That's a pretty small world, uh, but uh, in that world, he was a pretty big deal. Uh, when he died three or four years ago, the New York Times put an obituary in about him. And usually when biologists die, the world doesn't know. Right? You, just, you just die. So he made it pretty big. He made it so big, he got on Reading Rainbow one day. I mean, you know you've made it in biology when you host Reading Rainbow. So he was an evolutionary biologist, did a lot of work with butterflies. And as my little undergrad self was sitting in that seat in the mid-90s, and at the feet of Dr. Lincoln Brower, one of the common arguments for evolution was something called junk DNA, which I'm not going to talk about, but I'm just going to introduce the idea. DNA is the code for proteins, and that was... Everyone's, everyone knows that chart. DNA leads to proteins. But less than 5% of your DNA actually does that. So the question was, what is that other 95% of your DNA doing in there? And 
the explanation to me was, that's just leftover from our evolutionary history. It's evolutionary junk, detritus. Genes that used to be needed no longer are. And so we are down to this 5%. That always sat odd with me, but you get that idea, right? No designer would design 95% junk in your DNA. I agree with that, by the way. <laughs> More on that in a little bit. So therefore, it wasn't designed. That's a bad design. That's the argument. And there's other kinds of arguments that go along with that. And it's a pretty common argument made. <clears throat> so we're going to address that argument tonight. Now, to begin addressing that with, with an ac another accusation made, really it relates to that, that you creationists, we are told, you employ a God of the gaps. And that means if you understand this piece and you understand this piece and you don't understand what's in the middle, all you do is you plug God in there and you say, well, God did it and you're done. And that just answers every question for you. Any gap in knowledge, you fill with saying, well, God did it. And that just answers it. Poof. The God of the gaps. And there's a couple things wrong with that. First of all, if we do that, that's shame on us for doing that. That's not how we should be doing it for several reasons. A colleague of mine, I think you all, has Doy, Doy Moyer has been here, I think, right? I think he came here with you one time. You all had a heavy weekend that weekend. I mean, a powerful weekend. I, had, yeah, I think you had Buddy and Doy and Thaxter all in one. That's a lot of brain power in one building, folks, I'm telling you. It's a lot of neurons firing there. And he, he came up with this chart, and I just happened to find it several months ago. And it relates well to this point. This is the idea of God of the gaps. We understand what's on the left, under that blue arrow. We understand what's on the right, under that blue arrow. And the middle, we don't understand. Therefore, that's where God plugs in. We can explain materialistically what's happening on the left and on the right. In the middle, we don't know, so that's where we just throw God. Well, there's a number of problems with this. One is that it leads to a deistic view of God. That basically God created nature and now he's standing back aloof and having nothing to do with it except those little gaps where he has to plug himself in every once in a while and sort of help it along. God's not intimately involved in his creation anymore. And that's an unbiblical view. The second problem, as we fill in the gaps, God's role becomes less and less important. That's a problem. It also leads tends to lead to pride as we fill in the gaps. Look what we know. Look what we have figured out. And that's a dangerous place to be. And it simply is not the biblical God. That's not how God acts. We could develop that point a lot further just looking at a couple of passages that can help illustrate that. Hebrews, those are coming in just a second. I thought I had them on this slide. This is the better interpretation of this. Here you have knowledge on the left, you have knowledge on the right, you have a gap in the middle, but God brackets all of it. We know what we know because God is upholding that. That's why it continues to exist at all. The reason the universe continues to run as it runs and life continues to adapt as it adapts is because the Word of God is allowing that to happen. And if He were to take His Word away, it's going to fall apart because He is what holds it together, both what we know and what we don't know in the gaps. God's in all of it. He's not piecemealed out. This avoids deism, and God upholds nature. As we fill in those gaps about how things work, we tend to honor God more. And that's what scientists two and three hundred years ago often did, in fact. It's what Scripture leads us to in Psalm 8 and Psalm 19. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visit him? When I consider the heavens, the moon and stars that you have ordained... That leads us, well, what is man? We 
lower ourselves in our view, and we magnify God in his view this way. It builds humility, because we realize we don't know it all. We know so little, and that's really what God was telling Job at the end of that book. Who are you? You come before me. Let me ask you some questions. By the time he was done running through those many, many questions to Job, he was reminding Job of his place and God's own place. He said, remember who you're talking to, and you remember who you're talking of. And that is the biblical God. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, Colossians 1, 17, Paul's words in Acts 17, 24 and 28 all speak that God upholds all that we're doing. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 reads this way, who being the brightness of his glory, speaking of Jesus, and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All things are being held together right now because Jesus is doing so. Or Colossians chapter 1, 17. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist. So a proper understanding as a Christian, looking at science, and where we understand how things work, and where we don't understand how things work, it's not try to put God in one place and not in another. God's in all the places. And so, if an evolutionist says, look, all you do is plug God in the gaps, I say, that's not true at all, God is in the gap. But God's everywhere, including all these little materialistic details that we've learned and come to discover. And that is important, because the charge is, leave God out of it entirely. If you bring God in it at all, then it's no longer science at all. And that's part of the key problem with the poor design argument, is the poor design argument by its nature brings God into the argument. This is how it goes. We're going to develop this over the next few minutes. I look at this thing as a biologist, and I think, that looks a mess. God wouldn't do it that way. What have I just brought into the argument? God. And my idea of what God would have done had he done something. That doesn't look like it. Therefore, God didn't do it. Folks, that's a theological argument. That's not a scientific argument. At its core, that's a theology argument. And they make it all the time, as we'll see in some of our illustrations um, this evening. Darwin used that line of argument a lot in his book, Origin of Species. And one reason he did is what we talked about last night is his own education. But he mentioned uh, William Paley, he wrote a book called Natural Theology. And natural theology was a way of viewing the world. And he was, his book was probably the, certainly the most well-known of uh, articulations of that argument. You studied the world to learn about God. That was kind of what natural theology is. And it looked in the world for evidence of God, in particular his power and his wisdom and his ability to create beauty and order and design which design, of course, is a fantastic argument for the existence of God. But often in natural theology, they, they looked so much at the positive. If God created the world, then we're going to find wisdom and benevolence and compassion and beauty and joy and happiness in creation. And you can find a lot of those things in creation. And they reflect God. That's true. 
But if you, all, if you find beauty in creation, what do you also find in creation? You find ugly. <laughs> you find ugly. N- nothing personal to anybody here tonight. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> there's beauty and there's ugly. There's compassion, mercy in nature. But folks, you don't look very long at all. You get all kinds of violence <laughs> in nature. Just turn the Discovery Channel for a little while. Right? And you get poor little impalas, you know. I mean, what's their life? They run and run and run. Eventually they get too slow and a cheetah or a lion or something's going to rip their intestines out. That's a pretty brutal way to go. And Darwin saw all of that. And when he was taught this kind of theology, well, if the world tells me about God and it's ordered and it's beautiful and it's compassion and leads to happiness... Well, there's a lot in this world that does the opposite of that. A lot of creation that does the opposite of that. And a lot in anybody's life that does that. Darwin lost a daughter. It hit him very, very hard, as it does. Did God create that? And it was, he was, went back to this teaching that he had had. Natural theology often overtaught a misconception of God. More on that in a moment. <laughs> Intending to do good, they overtaught a wrong idea about God's creation. They imposed on God's creation characteristics that he didn't say had to be there in a defense to in an attempt to defend him and his existence. And it actually set Darwin up in many ways to start his poor design argument. The other thing you, you found in a lot of natural the, theologians, and like anything, there were different versions, you know, any kind of theories, got little different variations from person to person. But a great many taught the idea of special creation, that all organisms were created by God exactly as they are, best suited for their little niche in the world. Gets us to the Galapagos finch problem. They've got to really create all those different finches for just that one little island? Really? Is that what he did? Or did finches land there and then diverge in their traits? over time because of where they were. And so Darwin's educational background had this influence in it. And so as he went around the world looking at things, he thought these, not everything is beautiful or looks ordered or always optimally efficient. And I'm not sure about the special creation thing. In fact, you don't live very long before, you know, or, all kinds of organisms change. You breed dogs, you breed plants, and all kinds of changes can, can occur. And so natural theology had a big impact on Darwin, primarily because it was an unbiblical view of God. God is defined, in many cases, under that system, more by human sensibilities than by his revelation of himself in his word. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That means there's a lot of people who are going to be weary and heavy laden in life. And Jesus knew that, so he invited them to him. Blessed are you when they persecute you, Use you. He knew that was going to happen. Even Romans 8. Turn there with me briefly. We're not going to get... This is, there's a doctrinal somewhat of point being made. My point is, even creation, when Paul wrote this chapter, showed characteristics in it which were not ideally blissful. Romans 8 and verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Whatever the point she's making in that 
verse, here's my point tonight. Creation shows other things besides beauty and happiness in it. And there's reasons for that. So that, the view of natural theology was, was wrong, biblically. And it had implications then for those who believed it. There was a book in 1849 written by Richard Owen that looked at this idea of poor design. It was called On Limbs. On meant about. He wrote a book about limbs. He was an appendage guy. If you uh, look at any any biology textbook, you're going to see a figure just like this. So look at the bones on the far left is a human arm. So you have one humerus, you have a radius and ulna, in your forearm, there in red and white, you have a little yellowish, you have wrist bones, and then brown bones, you have the long bones, your, your hand, and then your fingers, right? Human. Look at a dog, and that's, those same kind of bones are there, in the same kind of arrangements. Look at a bird's wing, same bones. Different sizes, slightly different arrangements, the same, same design, chassis, so to speak, right? It's the same theme. And you look at a whale, same thing. You have one big bone, short and really stout, but it's, it's one bone. You have two below that, a white and a red one. You have some in there in yellow, and then you have five. They're not digits, but they make the paddle of the whale. Interesting picture, isn't it? Pictures are powerful. Are pictures an explanation? Thank you. No, they're not an explanation. They're a picture. <laughs> and so Owens looked at this. He said, no designer would do this. Owen really thought a designer should be more creative. If a designer did this, surely they'd be more creative than this. So I don't think God did it. Darwin read William Paley's Natural Theology. He also read Owen's On Limbs. And Owen said, this doesn't look like a designer would have done it. Certainly not God wouldn't have done it this way. Now, what has Owen just done? He's imposed his idea of what God should have done or would have done on creation and said, God didn't, would not have done it that way, therefore, God didn't do it. So it must be some other explanation. And folks, if you take God out of it, then you've got to have a natural explanation. There's nothing left. You have to have a materialistic explanation for it. And so he imposed a theological argument on this scientific information. And Darwin learned that, and he saw that. A philosopher of science named Stephen Dilley, I think it's Stephen Dilley, commented on this, and he said this. It's kind of a long quote. Hang with me. We're going to look at several quotes tonight. The challenge with quoting, the challenge with quoting scientists is they tend to be wordy. They tend to use words we don't use very often, and so our brains get tired, because there's just a lot of syllables. <laughs> so don't worry about trying to learn, get all the details down. Just get the main idea of what he's saying, and we can get that. But I understand late on a Saturday evening, you've been working the yard or working at work or doing whatever it is you do. Hang with me. <laughs> and this is what Stephen Dilley says about this, this work of Owen's. <clears throat> what matters is that he, Owen, utilized the claims above as part of his case against special creation. These claims included, first, that a God who is free to create as he wishes would create new biological limbs de novo rather than from a pre-existing pattern. That means he wouldn't just make a limb and then make another limb for another kind of creature that looks similar. He'd start brand new. 
Make a brand new kind of limb so it would look completely different. That's, that's his point. God would do that if God created these things. That's what he felt. Second, that God must create biological structures, like limbs, in accord with a human conception of what we call the simplest mode to accomplish the respective function of those structures. And third, God would only create the minimum structure required for a given part's purpose. One might wonder, he says, whether Owen had subconsciously gilded God to resemble the archetypal Victorian gentleman, who was at once ingenious and industrious, yet sensibly temperate. In other words, what Owen clearly did was impose his idea of what God should do on the data, and it didn't fit. Surely God would be more creative than that. Therefore, God didn't do it. And that line of reasoning then continued to influence people like Darwin very much. In fact, Dilly continues, speaking of Darwin, because he relied heavily on, on Owen's work and his own work. And he said, when Darwin invoked Owen to attack special creation, he implicitly replied upon the same lines of reasoning. Darwin needed these claims, these theological claims, in order to use Owen's argument effectively in crippling special creation. Remove the theology, however, and little substance remains of his argument. Take God out of it. Say, all right, Owen, or Darwin, throw those bones up there again, and take God out of it, and now, why does it have to be a naturalistic explanation that does that? Why can't a creator have a motif, a design motif that moves from one kind of animal to another type of animal to another type of animal that shows consistent. Why not? Especially if he hasn't told us one way or the other his preference. Remove theology from it and the argument itself becomes much weaker. So let's take a look at Darwin, how Darwin used God in his own, in his own writing. I'm going to show you just a few clips from a few uh, quotes a few quotes from Origin of Species that just illustrate some cases, some examples in that very, very famous and tremendously power influential book of how God invo- Darwin invoked his idea of God in his arguments. Right. Here's the first one. He who believes that each being has been created as we now see it must occasionally have felt surprised when he has met with an animal having habits and structure not in agreement. So what he's implying there is, look, if you think everything was designed exactly for its given place, every once in a while you're going to find an organism that seems to have features that don't really fit its place. How are you going to explain, explain that with God? In other words, he's just brought God into it. And what he means by special creation is the biblical God. I don't include the quotes to show that, but that Darwin was approaching this from the, the biblical God, not just generic God in general. But what, he was, what was common in his culture, in Europe in those days, which was a belief in the biblical God. So you look at a an, an plant, let's say, and it has some kind of characteristic. You think, why does it need that? In the environment it's in, it seems unnecessary. Well, God wouldn't have done it that way. You've just invoked God in the argument. Second quote. He's comparing geese and other birds. And what he's doing in this quote is comparing their feet. There you go. Comparing their feet. Um, how some birds have more webbing between their toes than others. Um, and whether that makes sense for them. All right, so here's Darwin. And Darwin, like I said last night, he liked to write. He wrote a lot. And he, well, here he is. You can, you can hang with it. <laughs> 
Yet there are upland geese with webbed feet, which rarely go near the water. All right, so they got webbed, webbed feet, but listen, his experience, they're rarely near water. And no one except Audubon has seen the frigate bird, which, all, which has all its four toes webbed, alight on the surface of the ocean. It's rare, apparently, to see an, a, a frigate bird do that. I'm not an aquatic bird guy, so I don't know. But. On the other hand, grebes and coots are eminently aquatic, although their toes are only bordered by membrane. So he says, all right, you get a grebe or a coot. I'm a little more familiar with those. And you'll see them paddling around water all the time. You look at their feet, and they're not nearly as webbed to act like a broad flipper as the upland geese that don't spend nearly as much time in water, but have a much wider webbing in their feet. These little coots and and the other one is. (laughs) The greaves. Greaves and coots, too. And you have this frigate bird that only Audubon himself, the famous Audubon of bird studies. He's the only guy who's ever seen it actually use his feet on water. Everyone else just sees him doing other things. And his argument was, a designer wouldn't do that. Doesn't that make any sense? Webbed feet in upland geese and non-webbed feet in coots and greaves that are in water all the time? That doesn't make any sense. A designer wouldn't do that. It has to be the result of evolution. Well, you can argue, bird people could argue, do they really live this place at this much time? Whatever, whatever, I don't know about any of that. And that's not the point. The point is he has invoked a theological argument in the name of science. God wouldn't do that. I'm looking at this data and this data and this data. God wouldn't do it that way. If I were to look at the same data and reach just the opposite conclusion, I think God would do it that way. Would I be allowed to be in science and say that? No, I would not. But he can. He's invoking a theological argument. The fundamental problem of the poor design argument is it allows scientists to invoke God when and where they want to with their own view of who God is and keeps everybody else's use of God out of it, even design out of it. Here's another example from Darwin. On the view of each organism, with all its separate parts having been specially created, how utterly inexplicable is it that organs bearing the plain stamp of inutility, such as the teeth in an embryonic calf, or the shriveled wings under the, soldiered, uh, under the soldered wing covers of many beetles, should so frequently occur? So apparently there are beetles that have their... Wings underneath them, they have these little, apparently useless little sets of wings. Well, of course, the first question you ask about that little useless set of wings is, is it really useless? Maybe I'm just ignorant. I mean, not likely, right? But maybe. <laughs> maybe I'm just ignorant. That's the first, first issue with that kind of argument. Um, And it was a really common idea in that day that there were all kinds of vestigial structures, structures that used to have a purpose that no longer do, and those were all evidences of evolution. So many of those by now have been shown to have a purpose, including in the human body. There used to be a great many that people said, ah, you don't need that thing. Appendix was long thought to be a vestigial structure. It has no purpose in it. It does have a purpose. You can live without it. You can live without your right arm, too, really, but you kind of need it. It's helpful, right? It's helpful to have your appendix. But the point is, he invokes God. God wouldn't have created it that way. 
He wouldn't create parts that are un- not necessary. So he invokes a theological argument in a scientific discussion. Why, on the theory of creation, should there be so much variety and so little real novelty? Well, first of all, is that an, ob- an observation or is that an opinion? Is something really novel or is it... Folks, that's, that's an opinion. Why should all the parts and organs of many independent beings, each supposed to have been separately created for its proper place in nature, be so commonly linked together by graduated steps? Why should not nature take a sudden leap from structure to structure? On a theory of natural selection, we can clearly understand why she should not. A god would never have created a human being's organ system to be so similar to the organ system of every other mammal. In human anatomy and physiology, which I teach... We lay cats on the table. Sorry. <laughs> All you cat people. <laughs> and we dissect them. <laughs> because there's so much commonality that you can learn a lot about human anatomy by studying that animal. And Darwin's argument was, why, why would a designer ever do that? That's so uncreative. That's so unnovel. That's not what God would do. Natural selection explains that best. Not creation. And you see, that's all over his book. And you see those kinds of quotes coming from him. And what he does in this, it's really important, is that Darwin in in Origin presented two explanations for the data. One is special creation. The other was natural selection. And what he did repeatedly is say, look, special creation would require God to do it this way. It's obviously not that way, therefore... Natural selection is the answer. When you make that kind of argument, that's a contrasting argument. When you have two options, you line them up and you say, look, look at this option, and you reduce it down. You reduce it and reduce it and reduce it. What does it do to this other option? As you reduce this one, it magnifies this one. This option looks all the stronger, the weaker this one looks. And that's a real common way to argue. You probably have argued that way I probably argued that way unknowingly before. I'm trying to make my point. You demean something else and it makes my point look stronger. And philosophers of science have noticed this. Not just creationists, but others have noticed that kind of an argument. This argument is contrastive. The evidence powerfully argues for evolution by virtue of ruling out the alternative. Independent creation. This is a quote from Cornelius Hunter, who is a conservative, he's a philosopher of science and a conservative thinker. He's done a lot on this idea of poor design. You understand what he's saying there? The evidence, as Darwin presented it, powerfully argues well for natural selection because his argument demeans independent creation. And the only way he can lessen independent creation is by imposing his requirements of God on it. Not because God said he had to recreate things a certain way, but because Darwin said he had to create things a certain way. Does that make sense? And part of the reason Darwin said God needed to create things a certain way is because William Paley said that's what creation shows you about God. Everything's perfect. Everything is exactly as it ought to be. Everything is beautiful. Everything is happy. And Darwin said, no, it's not! (laughs) Therefore, natural selection is the answer. Well, did this kind of argument stop with Darwin? It didn't. It's all over 
literature for evolution ever since then. I'm going to show you some more quotes. Hang in there. These are all by famous uh, evolutionary biologists of one sort or another. Here's one by Theodosius Dobzhansky. There's a name for you. <laughs> In the early 70s or late 60s, he wrote a, he, he wrote a, a journal article for a, a science education journal, actually. It was written to teachers. And it had this title in it, Nothing in Biology Makes Sense Except in Light of Evolution. That title has become almost the mantra for evolutionary biology ever since. It's in every textbook I've ever looked at. This quote from Dobzhansky is in every single textbook. It's an article that's now 50 years old. That's why I'm bringing it up. It's a 50-year-old article. But Dobzhansky was a gigantic name in evolutionary biology, gigantic in the 20th century. And he wrote this, this article about it. <clears throat> Responding to that article, Stephen Dilley analyzed it and compared it to this whole idea of how he makes his arguments. Strikingly, all seven of Dobzhansky's arguments hinge upon claims about God's nature, actions, purposes, or duties. In fact, without God talk, the geneticist's arguments for evolution are logically invalid. In short, theology is essential to Dobzhansky's arguments. This quote that appears in every single book I've ever had about biology or biology education at its fundamental core is theological. It's not scientific. It's built upon ideas about who God is. Dobzhansky's ideas about who God is, which are very similar to Darwin's ideas and Owen's ideas, because those ideas have just passed through generations. Stephen Jay Gould, a Harvard anthropologist, uh, paleontologist, anthropologist, paleontologist, uh, wrote a lot about evolution, loved to write, and this is what he wrote in a book called The Panda's Thumb. He called it The Panda's Thumb. The whole book is about poor design, the whole book. Panda has this little thingy on his, it's actually not a thumb, it's a bone in his wrist that uses to help strip the bamboo that it's eating. And he says, that's really badly designed. The designer wouldn't create it that way. The whole book is about poor design. Look at the core of the argument of poor design in Gould's book. Orchids, this time he's talking about flowers. Orchids manufacture their intricate devices from the common components of ordinary flowers. Parts usually fitted for very different functions. If God had designed a beautiful machine to reflect his wisdom and power, what is that? Is that natural theology? That's natural theology. If God had designed a beautiful machine to reflect his wisdom and power, surely he would not have used a collection of parts, generally fashioned for other purposes. Orchids were not made by an ideal engineer. They're jury-rigged from a limited set of available components. Thus, they must have evolved from ordinary flowers. Now, notice how he shifts there so quickly from scientific data to theological statements. And you don't even notice it. He doesn't even acknowledge it. This quote acknowledges it very well. Notice how easy it is to go from a religious premise to a scientific-sounding conclusion. The theory of evolution is confirmed not by successful prediction, but by the argument that God would never do such a thing. If you didn't see that in the quote, maybe you can go back and look at it again later. That quote by Gould is full of God. It, it rests upon his idea that God would never create an orchid that way. Therefore, natural selection had to have done it. It's the only explanation for it. Richard Dawkins, famous evolutionist, advocate for evolution. Any engineer would naturally assume that the photocells would point towards the light, 
with their wires leading backwards towards the brain. He would laugh at any suggestion that photocells might point away from the light. He's talking about your eye. When the light, if this is your eye, and the light comes in the, from the front, the cells that are sensitive to light point backwards. And he says, any engineer would laugh at that. You talk about a ridiculous design. That's nonsense. Of course he didn't do that. Well, you can talk about whether that's bad design or not. And you're going to tonight. <laughs> that's not the point in this lecture. This point in this lecture, what's Dawkins' whole argument based upon? His conception of what God would or should have done. That's a theological argument. God wouldn't do it that way. Jerry Coyne, who's a geneticist. Our focus instead is on genomic features that defy notions of a supreme intelligence underlying biological design. Genomic flaws should, in principle, provide a more decisive test of whether unconscious evolutionary processes or cognitive agents have shaped our genes. What he says is you can look in uh, DNA and see there's weird stuff that is in it. Seriously, very weird and odd. And there are errors in individuals. He said no designer would do it that way. No intelligent cognitive agent would do that. It has to be intelligent design. It's the same contrast. Can you see that? It's the same kind of contrast Darwin did. It's either natural selection or it's God or some kind of cognitive force. It can't be that because it wouldn't look like that. Therefore, it must be natural selection to do it. It's the same strategy of argument. This is from my textbook that I will start teaching out of next Tuesday in three days. It goes through some examples of poor design, and then it says this. Such examples illustrate that natural selection is like a tinkerer, working with whatever material is available to craft a workable solution, rather than like an engineer, who can design and build the best possible structures for a given task. Workable, but imperfect. Structures such as the vertebrate eye, there's the eye again, are an expected outcome of evolution by natural selection. And so there's the same argument. Here's all these examples of poor design. A designer would never do that. Has to be natural selection. So from Owen to Darwin, all these years through, it just, it's continually present. It must be natural selection because God wouldn't do it that way. God wouldn't do it that way. That argument is powerful because it clears the field of any competing idea. If God could not have created the world, then materialism had to create the world. Had to do it. So let's close with just a couple of three, three key takeaways from this presentation. First, biology uses God, their version of him, to make material explanations appear stronger. And they invoke God in the name of science in science textbooks, in science journals, in science lectures, in science education. All the time. They invoke God on things. In the name of science. Like the design argument, evolutionists presume intelligence can be recognized. This is a key point. We looked last night at some examples of design. And we showed what they looked like. And we said, look, that has all the characteristics of anything that's designed. Whether it's a murder plan, 
insider trading on the stock market, a catapult, or chromosomes dividing in a cell. It looks designed, because designed things look designed just by their nature. Stonehenge looks designed just because it has the characteristics of anything that's designed. They use exactly the same argument. That they, and that's implicit in what they do. I can look at nature, and nature should have a signature of design in it. That doesn't have a signature of design, therefore it must be natural selection. That's the argument. Those geese feet don't look designed. And so what it means is, evolutionists are allowed to presume they can infer design and conclude the negative in the name of science, starting from the exact same philosophical perspective. I believe I can infer design, look at the same evidence, and draw a different conclusion, and I'm told, no, you can't. That's not science. They share the same philosophical foundation. They stand in the same place. That is important. Students, listen to that. <laughs> the argument of poor design requires the same physical, the same philosophical foundation to stand on that intelligent design requires. The belief that I can look at nature and decide whether that's designed or not. Owen did it. Darwin did it. Lewontin did it. Dawkins does it. Dobzhansky did it. They all do it. They share the same philosophical foundation. They're allowed to say, but that doesn't look designed. All we do is, argue, is reach the opposite conclusion. That does look designed. And they say, no, you're not allowed to do it. That's not science. That's important. Because it reminds you, you're standing on intellectually solid footing and fair footing to say, I can recognize design when I see it. I might be wrong, but I can recognize it in the name of science. And then third, when you look at where a lot of Darwin's ideas came from, they were seeded by William Paley in many ways. And Paley, trying to do something good, taught on something that wasn't true. He was trying to defend God's existence, and in some ways he set Darwin up to reject God's existence. Because Paley also presumed things about God that weren't true, because they didn't come from here. It came from his conception of what God should be and what his creation should be. If I impose traits on God which he has not revealed, I make myself and others vulnerable to more falsehood. And that helps set Darwin and a lot of others up. It is not mine to analyze God to justify or to explain him or to predict him. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Or in Job 40 and verse 2. Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Or later in that same chapter, Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God or can you thunder with a voice like his? And you know Job's response to that. Turn with me to one closing passage in Job 39. Job 39. In the middle of God's reply to Job, and speaking about his creation in this reply, look what he says in verse 13. Job 39 and verse 13. 
The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly, as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain, without concern. Because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider, and on she goes, talking about the ostrich. This is what he says. Not everything, this is the point I'm going to make. Not everything we're going to look at in nature looks wise. God makes the very point himself. Look at the ostrich. You could say it's foolish. God didn't endow wisdom in that thing because the way it treats her young, the way it treats the eggs. Now, I may have my perspective wrong. That may be very wise or helpful. But from my perspective, it may be nonsense. The point is, it, Scripture tells us there are going to be things in creation that look foolish. And God acknowledged that to Job. I think part of his point was, don't try to put me in a box. Just because you think something looks foolish or unwise. Don't try to put me in a box on that. Remember who I am, and remember who you are. We are reminded again, where I started last night, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Thank you for your attention.